Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, November the 30th. We are very excited to be back with you after the Thanksgiving break. We've got a lot of great things headed your way. So a lot of great news that's been coming out over the last couple of weeks. We did take the, uh, the week off for Thanksgiving. Obviously, we had a lot of turkey that we had to do. Um, my name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your host and joining me is uh, the biggest turkey in storage, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Welcome back to the show yourself. I know. It feels like for the last couple of months, Stephen and I have been trading back and forth. You know, we've had a lot of great co-hosts that have helped fill in for us, but we're we're closing out the year strong. We've got a lot of uh, things that we want to talk to you on this National Computer Security Day. Uh, it's something near and dear to our hearts, and we do actually have a couple of computer security stories coming your way. But we really want to kick off with, uh, with a little bit of news about uh, well, money, because that's what everybody loves to talk about. Um, if you think back to the glory days of uh, 2016, you probably remember that there was this little acquisition that happened. Um, somebody named Dell bought a company called uh, EMC, I think it was. And they, in return, they also got a company called uh, VVMware. Yeah, yeah, that happened. Um, at the time, there was this really interesting thing that happened with some of VMware stock. Like there was this uh, stock trade that kind of happened for a tracking stock or something like that. If you're not a finance person, you don't care about it. But you know who are finance people? The stockholders. And uh, six years later, Dell Technologies is now going to be settling a lawsuit for $1 billion with those shareholders over the value of that trading. The issues stem from the way that that tracking stock was issued to VMware shareholders and then how Dell basically purchased that tracking stock with their own shares. Now, according to the shareholders, um, Dell might have undervalued that purchase by a few billion dollars compared to the market value of those shares. Um, Dell Technologies was asked for comment. And of course, they didn't have one other than, yes, we have reached a settlement. And that's pretty much it. Of course, the specifics of this deal do need to be approved by the court before anybody gets paid. Stephen, did Dell get a deal all those years ago? Or are they going to have to pay it back with interest now? Uh, Dell got a deal all those years ago. And even paying it back now is still a deal. Michael Dell is kind of impressive. You know what I mean? I mean, the guy... Uh, he can pull these deals together and make all sorts of crazy stuff happen. And frankly, that tracking stock was a pretty crazy thing anyway. Um, I guess, you know, people went for it at the time. And now here we are years later uh, with people realizing, hey, he just underpaid us. So, eh, okay. Um, I mean, honestly, it's a financial thing. Um, I think the big takeaway from this, though, is that it kind of puts the whole Dell, EMC, VMware, tracking stock, going public, going private, all that stuff that we talked about on the rundown for quite a long time puts all that stuff behind us because essentially assuming that this this uh, gets approved by the Delaware courts, um, it's the end of the discussion. Uh, and, and I think that it will be. Essentially, Dell is giving them a billion dollars to go away. And um, uh, the financial analysts that I follow and, and pay attention to uh, tell me that, frankly, this ends up looking like a pretty good deal for Dell, um, a decent deal for Dell's shareholders, and enough to make this whole thing vanish. So once again, uh, Mr. Dell, uh, you've done it. You've managed to uh, turn lemons into lemonade, I guess, um, with another billion dollars. Hey, Tom, uh, you know mainframes aren't dead, right? Uh, well... At least they're not for IBM, which is a company I know that you love to talk about. The computing titan filed a lawsuit against Microfocus, alleging that the company reverse engineered Big Blue's software to create a competitor in the space. 
Microfocus had been in a partnership with IBM to develop software to run on ZOS, but per the complaint, took advantage of this insider knowledge uh, to create a competing program called Microfocus Enterprise Server. Both software suites are designed to function as middleware for transaction processing systems, which are still pretty common with mainframes. Microfocus Enterprise Server has been available for about 20 years now, uh, which does raise some questions about what this could mean if IBM wins in court. Tom, uh, what's going on with mainframes in 2022? Uh, the fact they still exist is kind of impressive, although don't talk to your insurance company because they'll probably tell you that they love their mainframe. They, they have to have it because nobody's figured out how to port that code base yet. Um, IBM has been making a lot of hay recently about the way that they're transforming the way that they do business. And just like the last buggy whip manufacturer, they are still heavily leveraging the amount of revenue that they get from these old mainframe systems. You don't make money on mainframes anymore. I'm sorry, you just don't. What you make money on is the software that runs on mainframes, especially if you're the only person that provides it. And that's basically what IBM is saying here is they have kind of a, it's a middleware system that sits on top of a mainframe and interfaces with these old devices, these old um, platforms that allow you to do things like transaction processing. Yeah, basically like most of the world still uses transaction processing on a mainframe. If you thought porting your code from an enterprise on-prem data center into the cloud was hard, Try dragging it from the 1970s all the way up. And that's kind of what IBM is trying to do is they're trying to create these bridges that would allow that to happen. So naturally, there's a lot of money to be made in that. And Microfocus said, hey, we'd like to make some money too. Here's where it gets into the really messy part. How much access did Microfocus have into IBM's development program? And how much did they borrow to build their own product, which competes with IBM. Now, we've covered a couple of lawsuits just like this on the rundown just this year. One company that's had a very comfortable seat in the market for a long time is alleging that an upstart that had people that used to be involved with them stole things. And as we found out over the last couple of months, um, providing examples of code doesn't exactly absolve you of crimes or prove that you're a good coder. Uh, let's be fair, like what, 85% of code is just copied off of Stack Flow, uh, Overflow anyway? Uh, leave your hateful comments down below, by the way. But um, realistically speaking, there's only so many ways that you can access a device driver or write things to a database. And so IBM is going to have to go into a court full of people who are not software engineers and prove that Microfocus lifted all of this code with the intent to put it into their own product. Now, the question is, when did Microfocus Enterprise servers start borrowing the code? If they only started borrowing it in the last couple of years, mm, that's going to be a hard case to prove. But if IBM can actually trace this back and find out that Microfocus has been stealing code out of their system for over a decade, you know, that's going to be a slam dunk for them. Um, we're going to keep an eye on the story, but obviously compared to everything else that happens in tech, it's probably not going to be as big of a deal. I expect that we're probably going to see a settlement pretty soon. Um, you know, Somebody's going to pay some money. Some software is probably going to get taken off the market or there's going to be like big disclaimers on it. Um, that's just kind of how these things usually go. Um, Stephen, there were a couple of curious stories that appeared right around the Thanksgiving holiday that seemed to indicate that Micron is both reducing their NAND and DRAM production as well as ramping it up. It's almost like Schrodinger himself wrote this. Um, the first story comes at, and mentions that Micron has cut their production for memory chips because of the falling demand in the technology across the industry. Um, CEO Sanjay Matrura said that the moves were designed to limit growth and reduce inventory sizes. 
Now, if that story sounds somewhat familiar, it's because we've heard it from almost every other manufacturer of these chips in the market. Um, that's kind of interesting because there's this general downturn for NAND chips and for DRAM chips. However, there was a different news article that came out and it said that Micron is accelerating the delivery of their one beta DRAM chips. These are focused on smartphones. And that acceleration means that Micron is gonna start ramping up production for commercial uh, implementation of this product line. And that's gonna happen almost a year before any of their other competitors. So Stephen, are we a little bit confused about what Micron's really looking to do here? Or are they really looking for a plan to think outside of the box? Yeah, Micron's actually doing a really, uh, a really good job here. Micron's management deserves some kudos, I think. So essentially, we're, uh, they're living in a, a market. Now, it's important to understand that the DRAM market is extremely cyclical. It's constantly going up and down. And, and Micron, of all companies, knows this. I mean, they've lived through this their entire time that they've existed. And even though they've tried to diversify, and they have diversified into some other areas, um, DRAM, dynamic RAM memory, really uh, is the bellwether for uh, Micron's success or failure. Uh, they're maybe not the biggest uh, producer of, of memory chips anymore, but they are one of the most important. And I think that what the, what's happening here is the, the, the company is, is trying to keep up with another uh, market cyclical trend. The cyclical trend, by the way, is ugly. Uh, DRAM prices were high and now they are dropping quick, like a stone in a well. And Micron has to deal with that. Um, the demand is low, customers aren't paying a lot anymore. Micron has uh, admitted, in fact, uh, at a conference today, I guess, or yesterday, they admitted that they uh, are cutting pricing because you know customers just aren't paying the high prices anymore. They're cutting uh, starts, they're cutting production, they're cutting everything they can to not end up with a bunch of unsellable product. But at the same time, Microsoft, Micron understands that uh, what goes down will come up, especially when it comes to dynamic RAM. And there's a whole new generation of DDR5 coming. Uh, there's a whole new process node switch happening. Uh, it's called one alpha, one beta, that sort of thing. Um, Micron is right there um, and is uh, actually leading the development of new process nodes. So that's the, you know, the one beta uh, samples that they shipped. They're saying that these will give about a 35% improvement in bit density and a 15% improvement in power uh, efficiency relative to the one alpha node that's shipping now. And um, Micron is pretty far ahead of their competitors in uh, shipping this new technology. So I think that what we're seeing from the outside, it could leave us really scratching our head saying, wait a second, wait a second, they're cutting production and then they're investing in this thing and they're building a fab and what are they doing? But the answer is they're doing what a DRAM company has to do in order to stay ahead of the market, which is to cut costs when uh, demand is low and to ramp up the next generation product so that when demand heats up again and when people want the next generation product, they're there to serve it. So frankly, I would say, in my opinion, all this news looks really good for Micron, and all this news actually looks pretty good for the overall enterprise IT space because, uh, once again, it's cyclical. Uh, it's easy to get scared when, um, when prices and demand are low, but just like Micron is seeing here, it's going to come back. And uh, at the end of the day, people need CPUs, they need memory, they need ASICs, they need storage, they need networking, they need all this stuff, and they'll come back and buy it. Tom, uh, let's take a look at a different technology now. Um, 
casing into my crystal, crystal ball, I see quantum technology, quantum power. Uh, during SC22 this week, uh, Dell released a blueprint for a traditional IT server infrastructure that allows for the integration of quantum computing with traditional computing. The idea is that an organization that uses a traditional server infrastructure uh, would deliver the results from quantum calculations uh, from technologies powered by IonQ. Uh, Dell's goal is to take uh, complex calculations like these that are being run on GPUs and offload some of these things to quantum uh, before returning the results back in a traditional system. The hope is that by integrating these two technologies, Dell can provide value by letting quantum computer do what it does best and leaving the rest to more traditional um, computing systems. This sounds pretty smart. Uh, what do you think, Tom? So I think Dell's finally figured out how to unlock the value of a quantum computer. So the short, short version, for those of you out there who haven't watched my conversations episode on quantum computing, quantum computers look at all possible states of a problem and give you probabilities to their solution. That's why they're really good at things like factoring extremely large numbers, because they just know all the solutions to the, the problem all at once. The problem is, is that they're not very good at doing what we would consider mundane tasks. So a traditional computer can still do those kinds of things very quickly. But like factoring a cryptographic key, it's almost impossible. But if you run something on a quantum computer that it's not designed to do, it takes forever. And quantum computers are expensive, mostly because they require a ridiculous amount of power. They require a ridiculous amount of wind-up time because you basically have to cool them with liquid nitrogen to even get them going. So what Dell is effectively saying is, instead of trying to figure out how best to utilize a quantum computer, why don't we let the system figure out what a quantum computer is really good at? So by creating this interface, you can let the traditional computing architecture just kind of churn away at things. And when it hits a problem that a quantum computer would be best suited for, it can effectively farm it out over there. Now, by creating architectures that are large like this, what you can do is you can batch those jobs for the quantum computer. So if you're going to have to ramp this thing up and get it ready to go, you want to feed it work as, as much as possible to take advantage of the state that you had to put it in. And so by basically creating this batch job where IonQ can say, okay, we've got these 18 things that we have to do, then we run them all, we create the results and we send it back so that the system that's waiting can do all the processing, then it can do what it does best, which is go, oh, here are some results, and I think they should look like this, and this is what the result is. That gives um, better leverage to traditional existing architectures, but also allows quantum computers to really focus on their value proposition. And I think that that's going to make it more likely for people to consider using them. Because right now, when you hit one of these hard problems, as pointed out in the article, your solution is, is to just break it down and, and spread it across a whole bunch of GPUs. Well, GPUs are still more like traditional CPUs than they are quantum computing chips, which means while they may be able to be doing really good things in parallel, they're still going to say, for this data point, here is an output, as opposed to, for given data input, here are all the possibilities that could potentially be it, and I have a very high confidence level that it's this. And that means that you're not going to be able to use the traditional GPUs to solve those larger problems. And that's where this value comes into play. So I'm kind of excited to see if any companies are willing to pick this up and run with it. And hopefully Dell can make a little bit of money off of it through that partnership. Tom, uh, of course, there's a big thing happening the week after Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And that is uh, Amazon Web Services reInvent Conference. Now, this is the, one of the largest tech conferences around. And uh, from the photos, it looks like it's uh, pretty well attended, taking over most of the Vegas Strip. 
Uh, also, frankly, uh, there's a lot of news coming out. And, and, and in fact, uh, since the conference is going on right now, it's a little hard to keep up with all the news that's coming. In fact, uh, just to give you a taste, I want to roll through some of the things that I'm keeping an eye out that we're really kind of not going to have time to talk about today. So uh, some of the things that I've noticed, uh, so we've got a uh, AWS Glue 4.0 uh, and Glue for Ray in preview. Uh, we've got new uh, general purpose compute optimized and memory optimized EC2 instances with high, higher packet processing performance. Uh, we've got C7GN, R7IZ, HPC7G, INF2 instances. Uh, we've got a marketplace for containers supporting uh, direct deployment on EKS. Uh, we've got a new uh, HPC6 ID um, uh, <laughs> uh, e EC2 uh, instance type that uh, is optimized for HPC. Um, we've got um, AWS Supply Chain, which allows you to mitigate risks in your supply chain, uh, new management tools there as well. We've got CloudWatch, Internet Monitor. Uh, we've got uh, GA of AWS Local Zones in Buenos Aires, Copenhagen, Helsinki, and Muscat. Um, we've got uh, AWS Verified Access, which is a VPN-less secure network access. Uh, we've got VPC Lattice, uh, AWS KMS uh, External Key Source, or XKS. Uh, AWS Inspector uh, with Lambda function vulnerabilities, um, uh, AWS uh, verified permissions, um, and of course in storage we've got uh, failover clusters for A Amazon S3 multi-region access points. We've got uh, EFS elastic throughput, uh, Redshift uh, supporting uh, AWS backup, and AWS automated uh, failback fail for disaster recovery. Um, really just a ton of stuff being announced. And, and frankly, we could spend months digging into all these announcements because basically uh, AWS does everything. But uh, let's focus in on a couple of things. You're right. I mean, that was an exhaustive list and it's basically Christmas for anybody who works on AWS, but you did mention HPC and one of the big announcements is around that uh, because Graviton 3E is finally here. What does that mean? It's a CPU that's designed to accelerate float floating point and vector map. Boy, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Maybe not for you, but if you run an HPC cluster, you are really excited because that's exactly what they've been wanting. They want a CPU architecture that accelerates those areas, which are where they spend a lot of their time working on. The custom unit is going to be aimed at those HPC clusters. And the idea is, is they want to eke out every last little drop of performance for anyone running life sciences workloads or modeling software. Now, at the same time, Amazon introduced Nitro version 5, which is the latest iteration of their groundbreaking DPU. Um, Steven, I know that you've followed a lot of the Graviton stuff. Why is 3E an exciting thing for HPC people? Yeah, 3E is exciting because of the couple of things that you mentioned. So essentially, it, just as a reminder, the Graviton uh, CPUs that AWS offers are based on ARM, uh, the ARM processor uh, instruction set. And ARM has historically been sort of marginalized in uh, floating point workloads. Essentially, floating point and vector math has never been their strong point. That's really what you've used x86 for. And, and frankly, Intel and now AMD have really done a lot to bring accelerators onto the x86 platform with AVX 512 and all these other uh, offload uh, instructions that they have. Graviton 3E is cool because essentially what we've got is an ARM chip that can um, maybe not keep up with some of the things on the x86 side for uh, vector and floating point, but at least hold its own. Uh, and in fact, um, maybe even do better. Um, you know, the, the Amazon is promising that uh, Graviton 3E 
uh, delivers, you know, maybe anywhere between 12% and 35% better performance on various uh, uh, compute functions. And um, yeah, it may not sound like a lot, but it's a lot when you consider that that means that you probably need uh, one third fewer CPUs and CPUs are expensive. Um, of course, they've also announced this HPC 7G uh, instance type, which uh, brings a lot of this stuff into the HPC space. And, and, and HPC 7G and, and, and Graviton 3E works really well with uh, Nitro 5. So Nitro 5 is also promising to double performance and um, overall and, and, and give a lot better performance per watt, a lot better pa packet processing and so on. Uh, Nitro 5, I'll remind you, is the latest generation in the AWS Nitro family, which is the sort of the prototypical DPU. So if you, if you think about DPUs and uh, offload cards, uh, which are now finding their way into enterprise computing and, and all sorts of things. Um, well, all of this comes uh, with Nitro. And, and, and frankly, Amazon is continuing to invest in Nitro and continuing to do more with it. All of this is to say that essentially we have a uh, sort of a next generation uh, HPC and compute platform here that shows what Amazon is capable of doing in custom designed hardware uh, but specifically around ARM and DPU, which are two things that I think that Amazon is really going to try to separate themselves from the pack, the cloud computing pack using. So overall, it's exciting. Uh, it's interesting. It has relevance in the enterprise because a lot of this technology is going to come down. And frankly, it shows us that ARM and DPU are relevant in a broader set of workloads than we would have thought. Also, I will say, don't sleep on that DPU announcement, because if you actually go back, Amazon's been building platforms and software applications to run on these things for the last several years. They are enabling a lot of things we didn't think were possible because they have the ability to say, we're going to run an ARM CPU on this device that can handle all the basic processing. But then we have another ARM CPU enclosure that's handling something very, very specific. As I was digging through some of the announcements that we read off, I realized that Amazon's actually doing something really crazy inside of their cloud. And I was going to write a little bit more about that and, and share it with the community later. But if you think back to the way things looked even just 10 years ago, the things that Amazon's going to do with these DPUs, with Nitro specifically, we would have never thought possible. And so that's why I think it's so exciting to see them revving so many of these products as we go along, because they've got talented people building good applications that leverage that value. Now, the downside is, is that if you start writing things that require Nitro, it makes it pretty sticky that you have to stay in Amazon. So I'm kind of curious to see how many people adopt this when you've got, you know, multi-cloud, super cloud type stuff going on over here with the desire to make it go as fast as possible. So Tom, one of the other things though, that's really interesting to consider is, so obviously Amazon Web Services is perhaps the leading uh, public cloud uh, it's also, frankly, leading the way on many technologies, like you just mentioned here with DPUs, like I was talking about with ARM. Um, and of course, as my exhaustive uh, list of rattling things off tells you, Amazon is really trying to appeal to customers all across the spectrum. So not just you know, your traditional cloud-native applications or microservices, Lambda functions, EKS, that kind of thing. Uh, Amazon wants to be the cloud for everyone. And, and of course, who can blame them? Uh, honestly, Google and uh, others, uh, Oracle, have done a really nice job of bringing enterprise features to their cloud, and that was traditional mic Microsoft's Azure's uh, uh, stance. But there's one thing that holds back all of these clouds, and that is digital uh, data sovereignty. So we live in an increasingly digital world, 
And uh, in fact, we have seen um, some recent fines uh, over GDPR violations. We've seen some serious concerns about uh, data in the cloud. And Amazon is really uh, focusing on this at uh, AWS as well. Um, they announced a new digital sovereignty pledge this week at AWS. Uh, the goal is to build out controls and features in AWS that provide ways for customers to have full control over their data and how it's handled and secured. And, and this is specifically international customers, so people outside Seattle and outside the US. Uh, the pledge is a statement that AWS is going to provide existing tools and develop new ones to ensure that companies are in compliance with laws regulating to how data is transported and used. Uh, specifically, of course, in the European Union, but also all around the world, there are controls and concerns about data locality. Um, how, how, what does this mean to you, Tom? Uh, this, I think, has a lot of relevance uh, uh, for, for many customers and, and, and the whole IT space. It does. And this is something that we've kind of, you know, we've heard rumblings about this whole data sovereignty idea for years. And, and it's almost a punchline at this point. I mean, if you're going to do business in Germany, you have to have a very strong data sovereignty pledge. You have to know where that data is at all times, where it's been, where it's being stored, how it's being transmitted, because the Germans have taken this bold step forward to say, we want our customers, our clients, our citizens to have full control over that data at all times. Because they believe and have believed for years that even if data just passes through somewhere else, what is the likelihood that it could potentially be intercepted, that it could be um, you know, modified, stolen, uh, what have you. And now that Amazon is, you know, obviously they've always had a global viewpoint, but as the globe is starting to realize that this is an important thing, Amazon has to do something, right? If, if you don't have a data sovereignty plan, then that's a non-starter for most people. And so what this digital sovereignty pledge is saying is, hey, we do have tools now that can provide you with some of this, but we're going to be developing tools down the road soon, which will help you address some of these other issues. Little things like, is your data encrypted at rest? Is it encrypted in flight? Like, do you know? Can you find the answer quickly? Can you find the answer quickly if a regulator is staring over your shoulder, you know, breathing down the back of your neck? That's where the value is for companies like Amazon. And, and I'm sure that, you know, some companies have implemented tools like this. And if they haven't, Amazon's going to force them to. Because what ultimately happens is it's not necessarily whether or not that you know the answer. It's how quickly can you get a definitive answer on that? Because when it comes to things like GDPR fines or, you know, now in the U.S. we have CCPA and a bunch of other things, you have to be able to produce that information. Where did that data go? How long did it loiter wherever it was? Was it encrypted while it was there? Can I ensure that the data never goes here? And that's super important because if you have a regulatory policy that says, and I'm just going to throw this out here because I know it is one, this data can never go to China for any reason whatsoever. It can't even go through there, let alone stay there. If you find out that it did, that's a problem. And you have to be able to document that. You have to prove what happened. And honestly, if the rule says it can't ever go there and it does, who's at fault? Are you at fault because you didn't have control of the data? Or is the cloud provider at fault because, oh, hey, you know, there's spare capacity over there at 3 a.m. We'll just send it over there for a few hours until it can come back. Well, traditionally, you're at fault unless you can prove otherwise. And that's essentially what you're trying to do here. By giving customers full control over where their data lies, you're effectively saying, I am giving you the ability to control your own destiny. But more importantly for Amazon, I'm going to be able to charge you more because if you're going to tell me that your data can never go to these places, 
that sounds an awful lot like you need a specific tier that allows you to say it will never go to these inexpensive instances, which means you're going to either have to pay more in storage costs, more in transport costs, because everything's encrypted now, or you're going to have to lock yourself into an offering that we say, you know, your data will never go outside of this particular area. Like if you only want your data to be stored inside the EU, great, you need the EU tier or something like that. I think Amazon is rolling this out to assuage fears, but I think they're also setting the stage to provide service differentiation for customers that comes within a little bit of an increased price tag. One more thing that I would add here, Tom, and, and I think that it's important to, well, I, I don't, I'm not trying to take away from Amazon here when I say this, but it's important to understand that this is a pledge. This is not a legal com contract, a commitment, or even a set of technologies and tools that allow you to do this. This is a pledge that says that Amazon understands digital sovereignty and that Amazon is committed to making this happen for customers. I applaud them for that, but I don't want people to sort of run off half-cocked and say, oh, wow, okay, the Amazon's got this thing covered. They really, they really don't, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, we understand it's a problem, we promise that we're going to address this problem, and we promise that we're gonna do our best to live up to these goals of digital sovereignty that is not the same thing as offering a, a real solution. And frankly, um, for the time being, uh, many companies in, in, in many different countries may be looking at this and saying, I appreciate the pledge, but I'm still not gonna do it until you've got the tools. Yeah, I think that that's an important point to think about is you know, a pledge is only as good as a piece of paper that it's written on. And if the lawyers haven't looked at it, it's not worth much at all. Um, it's getting close to the end of the year, but that doesn't mean that anything is slowing down. We do have some exciting stuff that's coming up. The first thing that I actually wanted to mention was uh, right before Thanksgiving, uh, we had our big security field day event. And since it's computer security day, I wanted to let you know that if you wanted to go check out the videos from security field day, you can totally head over to our YouTube channel. Just look for the security field day eight playlist. We're actually going to link it in the show notes as well. Uh, so you can keep track of all of the cool stuff that we saw there. As we mentioned, uh, AWS reInvent is happening right now in Las Vegas, uh, November 28th to December 2nd. Uh, just check out uh, your favorite Twitter or uh, alternate social media site for hashtag AWS reInvent or look basically on any site for coverage of what's going on at reInvent. Another conference that's going on right now is Gartner IOCS, uh, December 6th through 8th. That's coming up. Uh, and uh, you can check out hashtag Gartner IOCS for more information on that. Uh, finally, a couple of weeks ago, Gestalt IT released a full-length white paper, Digital Infrastructure at Data Center Scale. This was sponsored by Intel. We urge you to download that paper at gestaltit.com. We also released an accompanying Tech Field Day showcase presentation um, that features the white paper writers, and that's also available at techfieldday.com. You can totally check out the links in the show notes if you want to go directly to that white paper and directly to that showcase. There's a lot of great information in there that you're going to want to know if you're looking to do digital infrastructure, especially at those kinds of scales. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. We appreciate every one of our viewers out there. Um, we will be back next week, Wednesday, around 1230 Eastern Time with another great episode of The Rundown. We are going to be scouring the internet, looking for great news stories, both coming out of AWS reInvent, as well as any other cool things that happen to go on. If you want to uh, send us a news story that you think would be right up our alley, please make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown. Uh, you can also toot at us on uh, Mastodon or whatever your favorite social media platform at the time happens to be.
If you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel, please make sure you check out Gestalt IT on YouTube at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. Also, you can subscribe to The Rundown and any one of our great podcasts in your favorite podcast application of choice. Just search for Gestalt IT. Check out The Rundown, Conversations, uh, Check Some, the on-premise IT roundtable. There's a lot of great content that will uh, tide you over this holiday season. Uh, you can catch up on our back catalog or check out some new technologies that might be interesting to you. Like I said, we'll see you in a week with more great news coming your way. Until then, take care of yourself, stay warm, and have a great day.